Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. And this is our last episode before the summer break. <laughs> Coming up today, Panda is talking to Nezreen Malik about her book, We Need New Stories About the Danger of Cultural Myth. And we have an Ask the Hilo about dating post cancer. I have a treat for you a little summer parcel. I would like to introduce you to the best man on the interweb. That is an objective truth, incidentally. He is the best man on the interweb. A retired fisherman named Gerald Stratford, who is into growing very big vegetables. He's built up quite the community. Almost 50,000 people now follow his updates from the garden. Here's Gerald. Oh, bless him. Look there. at him. Click, click through to his profile. Have a look. What else My God, 45,000 followers. Well, look at those tomatoes. It's tomatoes. It's him saying, I've just emptied my first bucket of Charlotte potatoes, 11 pounds, two ounces from two seed potatoes. I'm well pleased. Cheers. Oh, is this his wife? Liz making piccalilli, salting the veg, putting in jars. Yeah, oh, I like love that. this guy. This is almost enough to get me back on Twitter. Yeah, it's, it's really, oh, I think, therapy for people. <laughs> Look at him and Liz in the garden having a glass of rosé. Oh, I love this. Everyone needs to follow this man, Gerald Stratford. Thanks for telling us about him, Panda. And then he thanks his new followers yesterday with a beautiful picture of some flowers. He says, thank you to my new followers. Here are some flowers. Cheers. I like that he ends every tweet with cheers. Oh, what a fella. I like him. Panda, I've got a question for you. Hit me. Have you... (laughs) ever been to a barbecue <laughs> yes i've been to a barbecue Why? This is, where's this well, going a survey conducted by hellman's reports that one in four britons 28.7 percent have never had a barbecue never had a barbecue or never been to a barbecue well i think they go hand in hand also just to let you know i don't have some searing discussion to jump off the back of this research i just <laughs> Just wanted to put it out there. I think I found it interesting because I actually don't like barbecues. And I was wondering where you stand on them. Is that as controversial as saying you don't like roasts? Or less? I forgot that I've revealed that as well. No, I don't like roasts. Not good for the old salt of the earth image there, Pandora. You don't like roasts. I don't like barbecues. (laughs) I love barbecues. Maybe we really aren't women of the people. No, I don't, I don't, I just think, well, maybe it's because I'm vegetarian and what you get is just, uh, you know, like pieces of charred red pepper. Um, and halloumi. And, and sometimes halloumi. There's never much halloumi to go around, though. There's never enough halloumi. I don't like the smell of it, the smell of barbecue in your hair. 
There's always a kid running around. There's always, um, like, the wine is a bit too warm. Everyone milling about. I just, barbecues bum me out. I don't like them. Dolly, you're sending me into a catatonic depression. <laughs> I love all <laughs> the things. what I mean, though. No, I don't. I think they're joyful and... Um, I want to move on before you completely shit on the one thing that's left in life. Sorry. It's just that I can just close my eyes and see and smell them now. Some sort of, like, now that's what I call summer hits blasting out of a speaker coming coming from a kitchen window. Love oh, it. I just don't. I don't like them. No one invite me to your barbecues, please. Um, I don't think anyone <laughs> will after that. You sound like you'd be a, a horror to have a picnic as well picnics are okay i just never really want to have an afternoon in a park ever again after lockdown do you <laughs> uh, i've got many years left in a park by dint of having babies the park is going yes. to be my yes. my home from home for decades possibly yeah sadly i think you're right some very shocking news this week, but not so shocking for many of the Jewish community who were painfully aware of the omnipresence of anti-Semitism. This week, the musician Wiley tweeted a series of deeply offensive anti-Semitic tweets. Some of the tweets were deleted, but Twitter was criticised for taking time to act and leaving some tweets up. I'm not going to repeat what the tweets were on the show, but they were deeply, deeply offensive Dozens of public figures supported a two-day walkout in which Twitter users were encouraged to use the hashtags no safe space for Jew hate and 48-hour silence. Police are now investigating Wiley's tweets and have said that inquiries remain ongoing. I want to play a clip from Emma Barnett's Five Live show in which she spoke clearly and passionately about why this incident was not just upsetting but is truly terrifying for a lot of Jewish people. Those words burn. I'm sure I don't need to tell most of you that, but just in case I do, they burn deep and they're deeply dispiriting and they play on a very well-hidden fear a lot of Jewish people have that someday anti-Semitism will rise up once more because anti-Semitism is fresh and so raw for us. To tell you this, to take you into my life, my grandmother escaped the Nazis from Wiener Neustadt in Austria and found sanctuary as a housemaid in this country. My husband's grandmother survived unspeakable torture in Auschwitz, in Europe, a two-hour flight from here. I've been there. He can't go. He can't bear it. These were our grandmothers who read us bedtime stories safe in our beds in this country. This happened to them in their lifetime. People I met and loved. She's really brilliant, Emma Barnett. What is so shocking and disappointing, as you say, is how many tweets there were. Um, it wasn't just like three or four. I, was it almost into the hundreds? I have to say, I was with some friends when we saw them and one of us read a few of them out and I, I actually didn't want to hear any more of them. They were so... I couldn't believe the language he was using and what he was saying. It was... And I, and I hope that doesn't sound ignorant because I know that this is, like, a reality for so many Jewish people and it's a privilege for me to have been so shocked by it. Like, that's a, that's a symptom of my privilege. But I felt a physical effect from reading it. It was unbelievable. 
The upset only seemed to encourage him, even when his manager of 12 years, a, a Jewish man, attempted to halt him. Um, you know, he carried, he carried on and just said, fuck, the name of his manager. Uh, possibly there's a mental health element involved there. We, we can't know. I won't speculate and I don't want to conflate anti-Semitism with mental health issues. But, but the tweets do read like someone who was very much trying to throw himself under the bus. David Baddiel tweeted, Wiley's still going and Twitter in its failure to act when they act pretty fast in suspensions normally enhances and intensifies the idea that hate speech against Jews is a lesser, more insignificant form of the category, maybe not hate speech at all. And I think that's a really interesting point, this idea that things have to be comparable and there has to be a hierarchy that because a lot of hideous things have happened this year, that anti-Semitic abuse is somehow lesser um, or not a big deal. And that, I think, is a falsehood and a distraction and doesn't help us to kind of combat what, what's going on. And it's important to acknowledge, I think, that it's an obvious point to make, but while hate and abuse and even stereotyping of and against minorities, they are defined and different and manifest differently and have different effects and are rooted in very different, nuanced, complicated histories. They are united in severity and the urgency in which they should be addressed. A lot of people have been asking what can I do? I think there can be a sense of impotency when something like this happens is how can you how can you help? Um, a few things you can do, and this is from some graphics on Instagram that someone called Karen shared with me. Firstly, when someone shares anti-Semitic beliefs or tropes on social media, and this goes for any abuse, you can report them. Uh, it's very easy to do that on Instagram and Twitter. It may feel like pissing into the wind, but it really does work, especially when people do it in high volume and all at the same time. Secondly, if they have an official position or an award, you can write to their governing body. For example, if they're a professor at university or in Wiley's case, he has an MBE. There is a petition you can sign for him to forfeit his MBE. We'll share that in the show notes. And you can write to the cabinet office to request that he has his MBE removed. Again, this is not just for Wiley. It goes for anyone with an MBE or an OBE. The address is honours at cabinetoffice.gov.uk. Name the individual and explain why you believe their honour should be removed. I want to talk about a couple of newsletters. I love a newsletter. If you find a newsletter that really speaks to you and you really enjoy, it's such a treat to have it in your inbox every week. And I very rarely refer to anything in my inbox as a treat. The journalist Sophie Wilkinson has started a weekly newsletter called Side Notes in which she shares cultural recommendations and offers insight and commentary on news stories. Topics so far in the two issues have included a review of Helen Lewis's book Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in Eleventh Fights, Sophie's thoughts on artificial wombs and Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You, plus evocative holiday memories of a light show in Puglia and nostalgic musings on the songs of Tori Amos and Lisa Left Eye Lopez. So it really is the high-low blend that we strive for and it's all written in her characteristically thoughtful and funny tone and I love seeing it in my inbox. So I will link to the sign-up 
link in our show notes. Another good one is by the journalist Amelia Tate. She's got a newsletter called The Waiting Room. And um, her description of this, I thought, was so lovely. She said, like so many others across the world, my work has been affected by the coronavirus crisis. A lot of my articles are sort of nonsense. And at the best of times, my ideas can be hard to place. Shockingly, no one wants a long read on life inside the factory where they make the giant plastic ice cream cones that sit outside shops. And so she started, she's a very successful journalist, but she started The Waiting Room to write about some of those long reads that she felt like wouldn't necessarily get placed right now. So she went and did a long read on the giant plastic ice cream cones that found outside ice cream shops. And I read it and it's marvellous. Great. (laughs) You can subscribe to the Oh, I'd love to read that. Yeah, you can subscribe on Tiny Letter. I'll send you the link, Dolly. And please do share other newsletters you have discovered, by the way. I think there's a real... um, uh, surge for them at the moment. Our very own Dolly Alderton has the meander. When's that dropping in me inbox? Signed up for it. That's dropping end of this week, the meander. Is it dropping when you've written it? <laughs> <laughs> it will be dropping about 10 minutes after I write it. No, I've already written it. All. It'll be, I think it's out on Friday. Good. Very and excited. while we're talking about newsletters, I wanted to share a recent issue of Nick Cave's The Red Hand Files, which I've talked about before on the show. It's the most precious and sacred part of the internet for me, where the musician Nick Cave engages with his fans who write in letters to him. The edition that I'll be talking about was when he was responding to a letter about loss. So this was the message he received. I lost someone in the last year. It's unknown and unspoken territory to me. I thought it was fine. It was a gentle passing. Now shapes and echoes resound. I feel a presence that comes and goes, a comforting presence, gentle and protective. I don't understand it. I don't believe in a God that sits above. I feel a presence in all things, something mysterious and miraculous. Sometimes I gaze gently at the birds and trees and am deeply moved by the life that hums in them. It's strange to feel so connected and yet have a feeling of being so disconnected. My question is, I don't know how to understand the experience of loss. It's not something I could negotiate with. I hope this makes some sense. Nick Cave responds. Dear Rose, I've printed your letter in full as it describes very beautifully the experience of inhabiting the uncanny and disorientating realm of loss. Thank you for taking such care with it. The paradoxical effect of losing a loved one is that their sudden absence can become a feverish comment on that which remains. That which remains rises in time from the dark with a burning physicality, a luminous superpresence, as we acquaint ourselves within this new and different world. In loss, things, both animate and inanimate, take on an added intensity and meaning. I think this feeling you describe of alertness to the inner spirit of things, this humming, comes from a hard-earned understanding of the impermanence of things and indeed our own impermanence. This lesson ultimately animates and illuminates our lives. We become witnesses to the thrilling emergency of the present, a series of exquisite and burning moments, each extinguished as the next arises. These magical moments are the bright jewels of loss to which we cling. They are your sparrows and tall trees with wide branches. For there is, of course, another side where we lose our resolve, we drop our guard, or just grow tired and descend into that other, darker, less lovely world as we disconnect and retreat deep into ourselves. Rose, these revolving feelings of connection and disconnection you describe so well are the opposing forces of loss that define our lived experience. Letters like yours make a great difference because many of us inhabit this uncanny realm of loss and all of us will find our way there in time. Love, Nick. He always writes so beautifully about 
loss, but also kind of the metaphysical as well. That sounds like a really mm. pretentious way of putting it, but... No, um, not at all. You feel like we're part of space <laughs> when you read his writing. You become really aware yeah. of all the other planets that exist. Yeah, and I think I think it's true the way he writes about when you're in an intense feeling such as grief, the fact that you do inhabit two different dimensions of which often people aren't aware of when they look at you. This this dimension of I just love the way he described it that that sudden feeling of vitality that can come over you in grief of this is this is a you know one burning hot moment that we're here and and everything is humming and how lucky we are to be alive and and the living world the earthly living world suddenly being imbued with a with an electric shock of life force in response to the grief that you feel but how it also can very quickly tip into this kind of darker flip side of total despondency and not being able to see animation in anything. I just think he writes about loss and mourning in a way that is realistic and hopeful and I just deeply comforting. Thank you so much for sharing that. It was lovely to hear you read it. Although, I'm not going to lie, it would have been even more beautiful if you got Nick Cave to read it. One day... One day. Panda, what have you been enjoying this week? I've had the best week of discovering things I love. I love it when that happens, when you find a bunch of things that grab you by the horns from the moment mm. you begin them. Yeah, it's a real treat when that happens. I want to start with a show. Dolly, you are going to love this. I can't believe I've never heard of it before. Maybe I'm really in the dark because it sounds... It's As soon as I heard of it, I thought this is so up my street. It's actually five years old. It's a French show that is now being streamed on Netflix called Call My Agent. Have you heard of that? About 350 people have told me I have to watch that show and I still haven't. I resolved to watch it this summer. Okay, so it's deeply unoriginal of me to talk about it. I've never been recommended it before. Anyway, it's filmed five years ago and it's set in a talent firm in Paris who look after big French stars. There's Cécile de France, who is hoofed out of a Tarantino film because she's almost 40 and she refuses to get cheek fillers like all the LA actors in order to look younger. It's such a refreshing antidote to... Most of the shows I watch that are set in the US around anything to do with kind of talent agencies, you know, film work. The the one that I keep thinking about is one that I dipped into last week called Selling Sunset, um, which is about estate agents in LA. And in comparison to these kind of shows, Call My Agent just honestly feels like a breath of fresh air in those US shows so often and this is not the fault of the individuals it's kind of the demands of, a, of an industry but everyone is so aggressively tanned and toned and tweaked and diamond clad and it's all infinity pools and 10,000 square foot mansions and the glorious thing about wealth and chicness in France is that it it comes shabby. Cécile is one of the biggest stars in France and yet she wears jeans stuffed into biker boots and her hair is always um, unbrushed and knotted in a scarf and she's always in her garden gardening Dolly you will just love it it's unlike anything I've ever seen and it's so it's so French and furious and watchable I can't wait to get stuck into that 
so you can consider me the 351st person to recommend it to you. <laughs> but hopefully there'll be a few Hilo listeners to whom that is news. Another thing that made my heart sing this weekend and which I spent an entire weekend of baby naps binge listening to whilst manically painting, which is my new meditation. It's a podcast called Brown Girls Do It Too. And it's on BBC Sounds. It's only six episodes and there haven't been any episodes made this year. It's a series made last year. And yet it won Podcast of the Year at the British Podcast Awards. Oh my God, I am obsessed. This is completely brilliant. It is so worthy of all the awards from just six episodes. I'm absolutely gagging for a new series. I'm so obsessed with it that I got in touch with one of the hosts and asked, when is there more coming? And she said, hopefully towards the end of this year. So other fans of Brown Girls do it too. Hopefully another series is coming towards the end of this year. But a little bit about the podcast. It's hosted by Rabina Pabani, Poppy J and Roya Islami, who all work in the media and had never met before recording. They were put together by a producer for the BBC Asian Network. They all work in the media, but they'd never done radio, I don't think. I think Rabina might have another podcast. And so that first episode you listen to when they're recording is the first time they've met. And what's brilliant about it is whilst camaraderie between friends can work really well on a podcast, I hope, that is the USP of the Hilo, um, it's also, it's strength for brown girls do it too because they get to tell their experiences entirely through their own point of view, not constructed through friendship. And that becomes really important when they are talking about extremely explicit, filthy, frank and very, very funny sex. Now, the only other podcast I've listened to about sex is Guys We Fucked. So it's not a genre that I have loads of prior experience in. But like all great, not just podcasts, media content, it's so much more than it says on the tin. It's also about race and gender equality and mental health and uh, love and sex and dating. It's extremely funny. Um, it is properly filthy. This sounds absolutely brilliant. It is. It's an absolute Trojan horse of a show. There's so much in there. Poppy is particularly interesting on the shame attached to her arranged marriage when she was 19. She's now in her 30s and she says that many of her friends will only learn about her marriage through listening to the podcast. Um, her and her ex-husband divorced in her 20s. In the classic Indian Desi way, you get married and then you live with the husband and his family mm. and then you consummate the marriage. And of course, I was a virgin. I was definitely not getting any D. I was 100% virgin. And then I quickly moved. The day I got married, I moved back into my parents' house. I mean, I didn't move back. I didn't leave. I just went back to my parents' house. And then somehow, this is so skanky, but like the aunties had concocted an idea that I would stay in another auntie's house to consummate my relationship. So I went to this auntie in Romford and stayed Mad with uh, my uh, now ex-husband. And I can honestly, I've never had this feeling but I since, but I could hear my heart pounding in my head and I've never had that experience mm. since. So I was fully dressed up in a salo kameez. I mean, I may as well have body armour. Like I, there was no way you were getting into my pants. Some of those okay? tiny hooks. I had, I think I even slept with a freaking scarf as well. Not a headscarf, but like the dupatta. Oh. And I was, full, I was like camping socks on. There was no way you were getting skin. <laughs> I was on one side of the bed. 
He was on another side of the bed. I then bring my sister, who I'm very close to. We then live in the, we both live in the living room of this flat and he's still in the bed. And I'm like, not going to happen, not going to happen, not going to happen. And then we move in to a flat. We have, we get our own flat. And I thought in that classic Hollywood, Bollywood way that I would have sex with him till I had fallen in love with him. And actually a real testament to his character. Got married in October, had sex in May, but between- whoa! So we- Roya's face is whoa! like. Shall I just give you a moment? To- Roya, wait until the um, third day. <laughs> oh, I love that, and I feel like there's so little airtime that's given to to those voices. Totally, I think. I mean, the premise of the podcast is not only saucy because it's three women talking extremely. Uh, graphically about sex but it's you know it's two Asian and one Middle Eastern women talking about sex and Poppy whose parents are Bangladeshi says she doesn't even know the Bengali word for sex like none of the presenters parents know they've done the podcast they're adamant that this is not something they would ever talk about with their family Poppy fell out with some of her siblings for making it I think it definitely takes on a new meaning when you learn about how kind of dangerous this conversation is considered to the communities that they grew up in. It it gets very explicit. It's incredibly honest. Um, it's sad sometimes. It's very informative, very funny and very comforting. The presenters are a joy to listen to. I know they all have full-time jobs in the media, but they should be on the radio. They speak so brilliantly and amusingly off the cuff. And I need more, 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 please. I can't pretend I won't tweet again begging for more of this. Pandora, I've also had a very big love affair in the last week with a book. And I'm so, so happy to see today that it's got a much deserved place on the Booker Prize long list, which is, I know you loved it and I know you raved about it in our bumper book special back in the autumn. Such a fun age by Kylie Reid. Such a brilliant book that everyone I know is reading it. I'm texting loads of my friends about it. I think it's actually inspired a group of my friends to do a book club because once you read that book there is so much to talk about it's you're gonna do a book club I thought you'd always been resistant to book clubs no we did one a few years ago and then it fell by the wayside and then a few of us have read this book and I think because we want to discuss it we thought why don't we just you know formalize the discussion and and make it you know monthly rituals so that's how fucking good this book is that it's making me set up a book club can I come or is that like bringing your boyfriend along to a girls night out no we'd love you to come give us a pricey of such a fun age so the book begins with a story of a young black woman Amira who is wrongly accused of kidnapping a white child who she is babysitting and this happens when she is at a very white supermarket This is the grenade that sets off the narrative and the rest of the story deals with three sets of characters, Amira and her group of 20-something friends, the Chamberlain family who employ her as a babysitter, particularly focusing on the mother, Alix, and a man called Kelly who unwittingly connects both parties. I think the first thing that has to be said about such a fun age is the characterisation in it is so uniquely brilliant they are so real to me these people this cast of characters that she creates over 
300 pages are three-dimensional to me in a way that it's just a form of magic in a way how she's done it and all of them are so different and all of them come from different backgrounds and all of them speak differently and all of them are at different stages of their lives and all of them have been drawn compassionately and with patience and often without judgment when it would be very easy to judge them and yeah they're just they're they're flesh to me now these characters the characters that are so enjoyable are Amira and her group of 20 something mates who are hilarious and full of that vim of graduates who are embarking on adulthood together and the language that they share and the rituals that they share and the humor that they share just takes you back to being a 20-something girl with such a magnetic force. The descriptions of their friendships and their life are so bang on. So this is a description of uh, an apartment where two of the girls live together. There were all these parts of Shawnee's apartment that made it Shawnee's apartment, regardless of location, and those would all leave with her. The HBO her father paid for, the framed prints on the wall that were painfully commercial, bridges, sunflowers, a New York skyline, a spice rack that was alphabetized, and a flowery oven mitt that hooked onto the fridge. Shawnee had a stereo system in her bedroom and a record player in the living room. When Amira's roommate wasn't at her boyfriend's, the two of them played music in the kitchen from a bowl they called the phone bowl. If they put it on the top of the refrigerator, it seemed to echo best. And then I loved this bit as well, where the girls are getting ready for a night out together and Amira has been taking a call outside. And when she, when she goes back into the flat... They're doing a photo shoot of one of the girls to try and make her boyfriend come out that night. Amira pushed Shawnee's bedroom door open. Inside, Shawnee was topless and kneeling on top of her bed, cupping her breast with one arm and hanging the other at her side. Josepha was holding a desk lamp above her head and saying, I feel like you have to get even higher, Z. Zara stood on a chair with Shawnee's iPhone held out in front of her. Wait, Amira's better at this. Zara tossed Amira the phone. I'll get down and hold your tits up, though. <laughs> What I love about Amira's character as well is that it's everyone else in her life, aside from her close friends, who are obsessed with her being black. It's her employer. It's the man that she's dating. And those descriptions, those passages of her as someone in her early 20s who is really interested in where she's going to go out on a Friday night, but also who thinks almost constantly about how she can be promoted from a babysitter to a nanny, because there's a really clear difference in the States. Being a nanny comes with um, health benefits, uh, whereas being a babysitter doesn't come with any health insurance. And so she spends most of her time thinking about how she can get health insurance um as well as kind of being into all those things about being in your early 20s she spends very little time thinking about how she feels as a black woman working in a white woman's house and I just think that's a really interesting and thoughtful kind of act of resistance by Kylie Reed is to it's not that the book isn't about race of course it's about race but I feel like she's very deliberately crafted a character who is more the recipient of everyone else's projections about her race than she is thinking about it yes. herself and she's the recipient of white people personalizing 
discussions of race. And I have to be completely honest, this is not an easy read. It's uncomfortable to read as a white person because I'm not conflating myself with with her white characters and the behaviour of these white characters. Some of it was recognisable to me and it wasn't comfortable to read because she was looking at these white characters who are more preoccupied with not seeming racist rather than doing the egoless work of dismantling racism. And I think we all have to be aware of that. We all have to be aware of performative allyship and whether that allyship is helpful or whether it's to alleviate some sort of guilt on our part or whether it's to straighten out a reputation that we're precious about and it's done so deftly and subtly and it really creeps up on you this like it's really icky to read in parts it's really it really explores privilege and race and all the the big knots of that and all the smaller knots of that and I think it I, th- I think it's a really good book club because I said, because I think it, 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 there are very few white people I know who would read that book and can say that they feel completely removed and immune from some of the thought process and, and behaviours of those white characters. And being confronted with those characters and how they behave is really important, I think, for white people at this moment in time. Another dynamic I find really interesting, which... I think Kylie is very keen to probe as she was a nanny at the time she was... When she started writing the book, she was a nanny. Uh, and it's something that Leila Slimani um, really prods in Lullaby. It's incredibly interesting. Is that relationship between employer and employee? So when someone is a childminder or a babysitter or a nanny, they are sort of part of the family, quote-unquote, but then they're also not because there's a there's an economic transaction going on. And I think that's a really interesting way to look at um, women employed in a domestic situation. Here's a great passage from the book, which is exemplary of this really sophisticated exploration of privilege that runs through the whole story. So Alix is the white employer and Amira is her babysitter. Elix also found herself reorganising her lifestyle around Amira, despite the fact she didn't have an explicit reason to. If Elix went shopping, she took the tags off clothes and other items immediately, so Amira couldn't see how much she'd spent, even though Amira wasn't the type to show interest or ask. Elix no longer felt comfortable leaving out certain books or magazines because she feared Amira eyeing her Marie Kondo book and subsequently thinking, wow, how privileged are you that you need to buy a hardcover book that tells you how to get rid of all your other expensive shit? Sometimes Elix found herself pretending in front of Amira that she was about to eat leftovers for dinner. In reality, she'd be thinking to herself, just order the sushi, just text Peter and ask him what he wants, what point are you trying to prove by eating leftovers? But still, she'd wait till Amira closed the door behind her to go to her computer, ask Peter if he wanted the usual and place her order via seamless. So I think that's a really good example of how Kylie Reid is looking at this very white behaviour, which is the preservation of our own egos and reputation being the thing that is often at the forefront 
of how we behave with black people and how we talk about race and how we view ourselves. And that might sound like a very kind of insignificant and small list of behaviours, but it is a manifestation of a very egocentric way of looking at something which is so much bigger than how we're perceived and obsessing over how good we might be. So for right now and the things I'm thinking about and the time we find ourselves in, I'm so pleased that I read that book. She wants Amira to like her. She doesn't understand that there's a necessary remove between her Mm. and Amira. She wants Amira to see her as an equal. Mm. And Amira doesn't really give a shit. She doesn't see her as an equal. She sees her as her boss. No, and but but also it's it's sinister because we know that Alix feels like she is wronged or stereotyped or misunderstood by certain privileges in her life and from her childhood. Why is she so obsessed with Amira liking her and Amira having a friendship with her? That's an inappropriate desire between an employee and an employer. She wants it so much because she wants to have the affection of a black woman to somehow ratify who she is. And I haven't seen that explored so clearly in literature before. I cast around for interviews with her as she has the nicest voice ever. It's up there with Philippe Sands. It's just a voice made to listen to. So I searched her name on the Mm. podcast app recently and it led me to a podcast called In Writing by the journalist Hattie Crissell. Have you come across that one? No, I haven't. I really recommend it for anyone that loves such a fun age. But also there are some great episodes with writers there. There's John Ronson on being Mr. Shame and how his book has been manipulated by both sides in the freedom of speech wars, which is fascinating. Um, There's one with Curtis Sittenfeld, Anna Hope, who wrote Expectation, Charlie Brooker, creator of Black Mirror, who I really adore the work of. Wow, this is a great list of guests. It's got former The Hilo guests, David Nichols and Elizabeth Day. What I love about it is it's quite a gentle, thoughtful conversation about how these authors write, where they write, what pen do they use, what time do they write, when did they start writing the book, how long did it take them, what time did they finish writing. It's all those nerdy contextual things that you rarely hear about when you read an interview with an author. So if you're interested at all in the process of writing or you just want to learn more about what it takes and what makes a great writer, then I really recommend in writing. I will definitely listen to that because I now want to know everything about Kylie Reid. I had my own book gobbling obsession this week when I read Hot Little Hands, which is a short story collection by Abigail Ullman. They're written in 2016 and these short stories, I mean, I do love short stories they are my favorite medium I feel like they get a really they get a bad rap it's quite hard to make people read short stories and I just can't recommend them enough as a medium for now because lots of people are saying they're finding it hard to read and that their concentration is kind of shot to shit so this is a great way to read fiction because obviously they're short stories and these ones are all about women aged 13 to 30 on the cusp of something so a loss of innocence or a realisation or a betrayal. There's 22-year-old Amelia who gets pregnant to get out of her book deadline. Can't say that method worked oh my gosh. for me. 
<laughs> There's Kira, a Russian gymnast who's taken to the US as a teenager by her coach for an exciting opportunity, which turns out to be slightly more ominous. Claire, who falls in love with a man much younger than her, only to find out that it is he, not her, who is the mature one. I want to read you an extract from a chapter about Claire, because Abigail takes what could be this very movie-style moment about one character realising how she has pushed the other character away and then them not living happily ever after, rather it turning into something much harder and sadder, but probably truer. She offers up her heart and this man just very coolly, not so much rejects it as wearily bats it to the side. I fucked up, I tell him. I came into this relationship with all this vestigial insecurity and fear. Now I know I don't need to feel those things with you. I should have trusted you more. I should have known you were going into this with good intentions and had good intentions all along. The wind is blowing, but his hair somehow stays where it is. He has his sunglasses on, but I can tell he's not looking at me. Well, he says finally, it must feel good to have a new perspective. I wait for him to say something, but that's all. All this talk about baby steps and giving him a minute and he's only used the time to run further and faster away. I'm going to wait till you're 27, I say, and if you're not back in love with me by then, I'll move on and find someone else. You've got eight years. He clears his throat. I think you should move on now. That's what I'm doing. I just want something light-hearted and easy and fun. I don't want to work on this. It's not worth it to me. He's gone. He's gone. He's gone. Oof. I know. That's a heartbreaker. It's That's a so heartbreaker. Hard <laughs> I know because she doesn't she doesn't Did not give like you. you. <laughs> <laughs> it's so tightly observed but also very cool and non-judgmental. Um like I said she doesn't give you the resolutions that you might enjoy or find easier as a reader and the characters as much as the situations are totally flawed you you can tell something terrible is coming just by the way the dialogue is written and she doesn't narrate it she just lets it unfold like there it's so clever actually Kylie Reid does that as well she doesn't narrate it she lets the characters you know through very spare arch and impactful dialogue she lets the characters tell their own stories and when I finished this book I closed it and I just held it to my chest and even when I'd finished it I took it around in my I had you know a bunch of meetings last week and I, and I took it in my handbag to all those meetings just so I could sort of get it out and present it like a child showing a, a medal um so if you are looking for perfectly formed moving but as you also heard from that extract actually pretty dark and pretty sad stories then look no further Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's now time for Ask the Hilo. 
I was diagnosed with cervical cancer in late 2018. I've had to endure gruelling chemotherapy and radiation therapy and had three operations to date. Thankfully, I've had a number of clear scans and I'm cancer-free, which is amazing. Recently, a few of my friends have asked me when I'm going to date again or put myself out there. They don't realise how cancer has completely changed my perspective on life, how I'm still extremely traumatised by what I went through and that I'm still dealing with major after-effects of treatment. I know they mean well, but how do I tell them politely to just bog off and leave me alone? I feel like they're trying to fix me. Pandora and I thought it might be useful to seek out advice from other women who've had cancer about what dating is like afterwards. So we're going to hand over the response to this letter to them. I asked my sister, who had breast cancer a few years ago and underwent both chemotherapy and radiotherapy, both of which take very different, very physical and often long-lasting effects on the body as well as the mind. My sister, Enna, wrote... I didn't think about dating for a really long time. Obviously, losing your hair is a big deal and the eyebrows and eyelashes that go with that. Plus, it took my body some time to recover physically from the chemo. You also feel that cancer slightly becomes the defining thing about you for a while. Everyone's hugely supportive and tells you how incredible you are, etc. And it can become hard for people to talk about anything else with you. I started to worry a little bit that that was all people saw me as, the person who survived cancer. But that definitely passes, and for me, it was the mental thing, when the hair had got to what I considered a decent length, that I got out there again. I'm not going to lie, though, it took me two and a half years from diagnosis to putting on my glad rags and going out to a proper party and having a cheeky kiss with somebody, pre-corona days, obviously, when one could do something like randomly snogging someone at a party. So I would say, personally, just tell your friends like it is. Tell them that their support has meant the world to you. Having their friendship has helped you through undoubtedly one of the most challenging times of your life. But for you, just because your hair's growing back doesn't automatically mean that it's over. Part of the weirdness is that knowing you're now okay takes some time to work through. I'd be amazed if your friends didn't understand this. Telling them what you need is nothing compared to what you have just done. Take things at your own pace and tell them when you are ready to put on those high heels and hit the town, you will definitely tell them, as in my own experience, when you are ready, you are really ready, and the world and your friends will still be waiting for you. Oh, I'm so proud of my sister reading that. Makes me feel rather teary. Thank you so much, Enna, for sharing your experiences. On Thank you so much, Enna, for sharing those experiences. A listener called Victoria also got in touch. You don't really think about dating once you have a cancer diagnosis. During treatment and surgery, your thoughts are more, will I have a life after this? I had a double mastectomy with reconstruction six years ago. I loved my boobs. They were my piece de resistance. They made me feel like a sexy, confident woman. My new replacements look amazing in clothes. Out of clothes, I'm very scarred. Even now, I don't spend a lot of time looking in the mirror. But when I do see myself, I don't mind what I see. What I've always been worried about, though, is what will a guy think when he sees them? Cancer turns your life upside down. It changes how you see yourself and how you feel. But over time comes acceptance. It takes work. It's the hardest job working on yourself, accepting your new normal. That has to come first. Cancer is also very clarifying. I no longer suffer douchebags. It's the filter I wish I had years ago. In the end, I dated when I was ready and I had sex when I was ready. And it was all right. I believe that cancer shouldn't stop you doing anything, but healing has to come first. Unless your friends have been through something similar, they won't understand. But they love you and they are just trying to help. Just tell them you are a work in progress.
I'm now going to hand over to Pandora for her interview with Nezreen Malik. Nezreen Malik is a Guardian columnist and the author of Why We Need New Stories, a radical and thought-provoking polemic which challenges the toxic myths behind our age of discontent. A powerful decimation of what she sees as cultural myths about free speech, political correctness and gender equality, amongst others, is a trove of information and will get your synapses crackling. Nezreen, welcome to the Hilo. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Your book is about what you see as pervasive and dangerous cultural myths. Could you define what you mean by myth and tell us why it was important for you to write a book interrogating and at times completely debunking them? So the the myths in the book, I choose six myths um, and they are, in my mind, when I started writing it, I wanted to, to figure out the sort of broad themes that I, as someone who had not grown up in the UK, uh, was shocked by when I moved to the UK um, and they are all related to things that we think we are very good at or that we've achieved and actually we are way behind on. Um, and they are gender equality, um, the fact that we have a diverse and equal society, the fact that our history is something to be proud of, um, and the fact that we have a, a media industry that is reliable and unbiased. So broadly, it's about those kind of three, four themes, um, but it's six myths uh, in total. So that's what the myths are about. Um, and I wanted to write about them and debunk them. And I came, I'm, I moved to the UK in my mid-20s, like you say, from Saudi Arabia. And, I, and it wasn't an easy move. It was a really difficult um, personal um, moment of crisis for me because I had my, my family didn't want me to leave. I come from quite a traditional family um, who wanted me to stay home and get married and have babies and um, weren't a fan of me leaving to the West and, you know, getting a degree um, and working there. So it involved a lot of uh, personal angst and, and, and actually a schism with my family that lasted quite a long time. But so it was so loaded with expectation that when I arrived in the UK, it would be this place where like women were free and, you know, racism didn't exist or not, or at least didn't exist as badly as it did in Saudi Arabia, the Arab world, um, where, you know, conservatism uh, as such had become subordinated to democracy and liberal values etc I mean even saying it makes me want to laugh because it was just such a naive view of the world but when I after living there for a few years I realized that that naive that kind of naivete was also how people really thought about the country you know like the people that actually lived in the UK did think uh, that it was so much better than everywhere else. And actually, and it is on, on many technical levels, it is better um, than many other places. But has, like I said, you know, we have some serious issues. Let's start with the myth of gender equality, which is the myth that you start the book on. You draw attention to the gender pay gap, which is still 20% between men and women in the same position. And you cite Jordan Peterson's theory on why there is a gender gap. It's not sexism or lack of opportunity, he says, but it's rather sort of a fine that a woman must pay for her neuroticism, her higher likelihood for experiencing depression and emotional stability. I mean, I'm surprised he didn't include pregnancy and periods in there. And that really made me 
burn reading that. Why is this kind of biological determinism, A, really dangerous, but B, more entrenched than we think? I think that there is a strong conviction that a lot of the inequalities that we have between men and women are a function of biology um, and that we have done everything that we can as a society to legislate for like everything in between. But at the end of the day, women, you know, they're emotional and they're nurturing and they don't have engineering brains and they're more about sympathy and want to be nurses and want to have, you know, babies and, and, and take care of the men folk um, and the children folk. And I think that Jordan Peterson was just honest about it. I think that 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 view runs through a lot of our popular discourse. And actually, uh, when the Me Too um, movement happened, we really saw that people's masks really came off. Very established liberal journalists and writers, male and female. It's not a, it's not a misogyny issue. It's not a male female issue. Um, male and female came out and said, "Well, you know, if, you know, boys will be boys, and women like being flirted to. And in the end, you know, men men are the hunters, and women are the prey." Um, and I think because we are kind of hypnotized by all the other developments that we've made and that, you know, we don't have honor killings and we, you know, women can vote and all these very technical things. We don't see the insidiousness of these very conservative views about biological determinism and how women absorb them throughout their lives. And therefore they, you know, they cut corners off themselves and they think, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't take that job. I shouldn't take that promotion. Maybe I should, you know, go for a job that's more nurturing or, or, you know, or more about, you know, my feelings or, or my, um, my person as such. And even, even saying it, it sounds extreme, but if you drill through the detail and the justification for things like gender pay gap, this is quite a lot of it, just not said in the crude ways that Jordan Peterson does. You relay a saying that your father used to say to you as a child, which I think says so much in so few words. Men are the axe, they break things. Women are the bowl, they gather things. That idea that women are designed to hold things together, to be nurturing and gentle and placatory, and men are the ones... Yeah that will change the world, that will move the earth. Yeah. And, and he, and the, 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 I mean, the worst thing about that saying and the way it was said to me growing up was that it wasn't, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't my dad saying to me that, you know, men are stronger or better. It's just that we all have our roles, you know, and, and that's what made it really sinister. And I spent a long time having to unpick that in my head because when I left home and when I kind of broke up with my culture or my family or however you want to put it it wasn't because I thought that I was oppressed it was because I had to really work hard to pick apart this idea that my role my natural my natural role was to be a bowl and to gather things and to kind of collect uh, the work of men and give it some shape um, and it's much harder to work that out if it's presented to you in a way where it's not pejorative. You know, my father wasn't telling me like you're inferior. He was saying, no, you have this amazing role and men have this amazing role. And I think women hear that kind of, they hear a version of that phrase everywhere they are in the world. Even in the gender pay gap, we hear that women, you know, they want to go off and have babies and they have to take maternity leaves. And the gender pay gap is just the kind of algorithm that calculates how much of that income is lost. Um, but that's because women's roles as parents and as, uh, as, as kind of 
domestic uh, organizers is not monetized. That's the only reason why the gender pay gap exists. And so the, the myth revolves around the, the framing of inequality as natural, um, as a biological thing, and as a fact of life. And anything beyond that is, quote unquote, feminism going too far. I want to come back to that, because that's your point you make about overcorrection, which I found really interesting. But on the subject of women taking maternity leaves and then coming back into the workplace, that seems to be a time when it really starts to separate. And I'm really interested by what do we do about that? Is the answer for women to have better remunerated maternity leaves? Is it for the state to intervene? Is it to have compulsory paternity leaves for men? Where do you see that progress coming from? Because I, I feel really stuck on that one. It has to come from the state. It has to come from government. If you listen to how we've been um, talking about the economy since the pandemic started, so much hand-wringing about, you know, private businesses, cafes really struggling, and the theatre is really struggling. We are, we are conditioned to think about what is valuable economically in terms of what we pay money for and get a product um, in exchange for. But we don't think of women in that way. We don't think of their role as mothers in that way. It's not been centered um, as uh, an input into the economic output of the country. So one of the reasons we need to think about the myth of gender equality is to understand that our whole world is built around this myth. It's not little bits and pieces. It's that we we're kind of we don't even have the right perspective um, on on the the valuing of women's work or women's roles in in the home, um, and so it has to come from the state. It shouldn't be put on women to figure a way out of it. It shouldn't kind of drag. Men should have long paternity leaves, but that really doesn't um, uh, correct the issue as much. So it's about prioritizing it and thinking about it as a commercial value. But the problem. <laughs> coming back to the myth again, is that there aren't enough women, there aren't enough people who think that way in the places that count, in the meeting rooms that count, in the boardrooms that count, to start making that change. I think it also goes across all kind of unpaid care work as well. Like women are statistically more likely to bear the burden for care work of vulnerable family members or of the community. During a pandemic, people who needed grocery shopping. And again, of course, that's not... The time that a woman spends doing that work means that she is spending less time doing the paid work. Yep. Because she's then got so many yep. hours and, in the and day. Exactly. And the reason, the reason we still struggle to think of that um, in kind of hard GDP terms is because we're accustomed um, to how Jordan Peterson talks about women, which is, you know, they love, they love taking care of their babies. Like they would have, you know, we, there's, there's, there's a whole language around maternity and parenthood, which really interestingly compared to where I'm from, which is way more conservative, um, is so much more, how can I put it? so much more glorifying of the female role in a way that's really quite regressive in the UK. Like the whole mummy industry, the whole fetishization of mummyhood as opposed to daddyhood, the sense that this is the, you know, the greatest honor and the most precious thing that you can do with your life makes it, renders parenting for women a sort of individual achievement. Like surely that's, 
that's the, that's the end of it. Why do you want money for it? You know what I mean? Like, surely you're having, this is like, this is, and you've this got is the best the thing. Why would you want any You've more? got the best thing. <laughs> exactly. This is the biggest achievement that you could ever hope for. Um, and you, and you're told that you're supposed to enjoy it. So why is this something that should be seen in, um, in cold commercial terms? That's really, what kind of monster are you? I feel like we could talk about that forever, but I want to ask you about overcorrection because it's a term I wasn't familiar with until I read your book. And it's so interesting because it basically refers to this idea that things have gone, quote unquote, too far. So, for example, feminism has gone too far or Me Too has gone too far. What is the myth of overcorrection and how do you see it playing out currently? The myth of overcorrection runs through the book um, and basically it means that whenever a group of people or a minority or any dis- disenfranchised group asks for a simple demand for equality, um, the first thing they hear is that's too much. You're asking too much. It's now all going too far. And it was so interesting to see that play out after Black Lives Matter because I've seen it play out like in my own personal life. Um, And I've seen it play out politically around me, but I've never actually seen it play out in real time. And it was really fascinating. Like the first part of Black Lives Matter, everyone was on board. We all were like, yep, racism, bad. We're on it. You know, it's time for a change. The moment, the moment these kind of abstract ideas began to become concrete, the moment Black people began to ask about, you know, revising our um, curriculum to talk about history or colonialism, the moment it became about um, removing statues, the moment it became about how we talk about law enforcement, how we fund law enforcement, immediately the response was, okay, hang on, let's not get carried away. This is now overcorrection. So the way the myth of overcorrection works is it puts the fault on the group that is asking for equality. It makes it their fault that things haven't happened. Because sure, your your ask may be legit, your grievance may be legit, but your demands are kind of OTT, right? And so when you make such demands, don't blame people for switching off. It was fascinating to see it play out. What it does is diverts the discourse, it diverts the conversation from the original grievance. So we went from like glorifying black people, you know, wanting to be really interested and examining ourselves and our racism to being like, oh man, I don't know. I think they've got carried away now. So, So I'm switching off and that's not my fault. That's their fault. Something that's really interesting as well about what you were just talking about is when kind of theory turns into practice is that it became really obvious, and I I really include myself in this, how unused to discomfort we were. We imbue civil rights movements with these kinds of poetic um, uh, values, right? That like Martin Luther King was this completely, (laughs) completely glorified, agreed upon figure as opposed to a really controversial person at the time. Um, We look back on the civil rights riots and see, you know, white policemen with batons, but we don't see all the liberal white people that were supporting them. Uh, we We look back even on Nelson Mandela and how, in hindsight, he just appears as this sort of very simple story of a freedom fighter, but, but at his time was maligned as a terrorist. Um, and there was very little sympathy for him for years. And the United Kingdom played a disgraceful role 
in being quiet and or even implicitly supportive of his imprisonment. And so what this moment teaches us is that when history happens, this is what it looks like. You know, it looks uncomfortable and it looks scary and it takes you out of your comfort zone. And if you don't lean into that, if you don't come along with it, if you don't embrace the fact that change has to mean discomfort, then you are one of those people who, when history was happening before, did nothing. You talk about something that is, I mean, the whole book is so incredibly relevant and timely, but amidst conversations about who gets through the door, uh, is you're saying we should not mistake access for arrival. So having a diverse staff in a company, for example, which many corporations are now kind of scrabbling to achieve, is only actually part of it. You have to look at the positions they're holding within the building quite literally, who's at the bottom of the building scrubbing the floors, who is in the glass mm-hmm. office at the top. Can you talk to us about what you call the myth of meritocracy? The myth of meritocracy um, is the, the idea that because you are in a certain position, it means that you deserve it and that you've earned it, whether that position is a good position or a bad position. Um, and we tend to uh, assume that when we have achieved something, um, that that achievement has not come as a result of our birth, of our networks, of our able-bodiedness, um, and of all the kind of objective circumstances around us, the, the kind of the tailwinds behind us that have pushed us to that to that state. Um, and for people who are in less advantaged circumstances, they are there because of the headwinds, you know, the winds that push them away from comfort um, and from from privilege and how that links to Black Lives Matter at the moment is that people who are making the decisions about who gets to be in what position you know which black people to put on which boards which which people of color should we read or should we talk to these decisions are still made by people who believe in meritocracy right these decisions are still made by people who think well you're kind of getting a leg up, aren't you, because of your race. You're playing the race card, right? This You're not here because you're smart or talented. You're here because you're black or you're a woman or you're playing a certain identity politics card. But they don't apply that way of thinking to themselves because we think whiteness uh, and most of the time maleness is a neutral default thing that hasn't helped you one way or the other. So the way we think about the world, the way we think about, you know, where people of color are in terms of where they make decisions about the world that affect minorities, that affect people of color, that affect immigrants, the way we still think about that is, well, they kind of have to earn those positions, right? The reason why there's no black people in cabinet, well, there's one black person in cabinet as junior minister, but that's by the by. The reason there are very few black people in cabinet is because, well, you know, you don't want to put them there just because they're black. They've got to earn it. Who says that everyone in cabinet has earned their position? Do you think Matt mm. Hancock has earned his position in cabinet, you know? And so the, the myth of meritocracy is to, in a nutshell, discount the identity privileges of the powerful and overestimate the identity privileges of the weak. I think as well that this is another example of how you can believe it in theory, but then in practice it can take a little bit longer I will always remember my sister a couple of years ago saying to me, do you think that you would have got your 
fashion columnist job at a newspaper if you weren't slim? And I was like, no, you're right. But actually, I probably wouldn't have got it if I wasn't white. And it took me an embarrassingly long time to realise that. And that's not because I was resistant to it. I, I just couldn't fully see how it had impacted me personally in my career. Yeah, well, there's a name for this. Um, it's called advantage blindness. When you are at an advantage, um, you don't see the advantage that you're at. It just creates a sort of cushion around you. Um, and that's fine. Like, I'm not, I'm not expecting the world to change. You know, I, in, in, I don't, I'm not expecting people to change their very perspectives on life on a day-to-day basis. We are structured to think about, you know, our we are structured, we are built as human beings to think about our lives in very subjective ways, right? You can't be objective about your life all the time. You can only draw on your feelings and your experiences, you know, and your anxieties and all these things get in the way of you seeing what the world looks like for someone else. The solution, however, is when someone calls your attention to the fact that you wouldn't have got your column if you weren't white and if you weren't slim, is not to immediately resist that thought and be like, well, no, I worked really hard for my column. What are you talking about? Like, you know, maybe somebody else would have got it if they'd worked less hard. That's where it becomes a problem. I think the things can coexist as well. I did work very hard, but I also had an advantage. Like it... It's not one thing doesn't cancel out the other. Oh, ab- ab- absolutely. And that's, but that makes it more difficult to write because we do, you know, we all put a huge amount of work um, in, our, in our jobs and, our, and making our careers. And when you have advantage blindness, it's really hard not to just see that, right? And be like, well, you know, I, I worked, I worked my, you know, I worked my guts off for this role. And I said, like I said, because we, we engage with the world on a very personal subjective level, it's hard to zoom out of that and be like, well, obviously, you know, someone else could have worked as hard and got, and got the position, but that's where these myths are really difficult uh, to unpick because they get in the way of like our egos, you know, and our sense of self and our sense of place in the world. And that's, that chimes with what you said earlier about discomfort when someone comes to you and points out to you that you know the place that you have in life you have got because of an unfair advantage that's a difficult thing to hear at the core of your work is the belief that freedom of speech or at least the way that we talk about freedom of speech is a faulty concept and it's something that has become kind of interwoven with cancel culture the conversation around which has really blown up recently and which you've written or commented a lot on why do you believe that cancel culture is a myth cancel culture is broadly a myth again one of the tools of myth-making is that forces into these binaries where things are kind of right or wrong. You know, are they, are they real or are they fake? And cancel culture is broadly a myth. I think that there are issues with how we um, pile on to people on social media. I think there are issues with um, certain views uh, being expressed about identity, for example, that will get people a shunning. Um, But I think broadly, the idea that there is this epidemic of cancel culture where people cannot say what they really believe or what they really think without being destroyed is a myth. And the proof of that 
is how many people talking all the time about how they've been cancelled. And I'm like, sorry, have you been cancelled or not? If you've been cancelled, why do I have to hear about the fact that you've been cancelled? Surely you have not been cancelled. And it's interwoven with the free speech argument, which is a whole myth in the book, the myth of free speech crisis, is that we're in this crisis of free speech um, because we are uh, being criticized for being racist and sexist and Islamophobic. Um, and people are demanding that we don't write these things. Um, that's just consequences to having speech. What has happened, and this is a whole theme in the book as well, is what has happened is that social media and technology has lowered the walls between people who used to just send their opinions out to the great unwashed public um, and the great unwashed public. They can now speak back at you. And fundamentally, that is what underpins the free, the, the so-called free speech crisis and underpins so-called cancel culture, is that for the first time in a long time, there is a much lower wall between opinion makers and their audience. And they do not like the fact that they're getting chat back. Um, and that chat back, sometimes it's just criticism, which is fine. That is also free speech. And sometimes it means that you've written something that needs to be, uh, that someone needs to take some um, uh, responsibility for. And so the way I think about the free speech crisis and cancel culture is that finally people are being asked in very small ways relatively to be held accountable for their views. And we have a huge publishing and media industrial complex that has not been accountable for a very, very long time. And that is what cancel culture is. It's not some mob that is trying to get people sacked um, or, or blacklisted or not platformed. It's just democracy in action in a way that is unrecognisable to some people. You put it so well when you said it's not freedom of speech that a lot of people have a problem with. It's that they are not free from being objected to. It's freedom from consequence of speech. It's freedom from consequence. And, and there's a real difference, isn't there? Because it, cancel culture, it, unless you've been like economically cancelled and lost your job, I think Ricky Gervais put it really well recently when he said, I am cancel proof in that I have enough money. What we yeah. often mean when we talk about cancel culture is what, what you mentioned is internet pylons. Do you think that internet clapback or critique has got out of control? Because you've been writing your column online for enough time now to have probably been able to track the shape of how people respond to them. Is that something you've seen? I began writing about 10, 11 years ago. Um, and then it was unfashionable council culture in that it was black people and women and Muslims that were being piled on online. Like the abuse that black writers got and that Muslim writers got when I began writing in sort of the mid to late noughties, late noughties, um, was obscene. And, but it was never seen as a crisis. It was, you know, people were like, oh, but, you know, Islam is not a race. And so it's not racist to criticize Muslims. Um, and, you know, free speech, people should have the right to, to talk about, you know, repatriating immigrants or whatever. And so what happened was, you know, cancel culture did exist for a very long time before it became fashionable. It was just that its victims weren't powerful right? Its victims did not have the platforms to go on about how things were really horrible for them. And what, it's what I find so, like, it's so exasperating that people are just, be, just waking up today and being like, God, things are really nasty online, aren't they? And I'm like, where have you been? 
where have you been for the past 10, 15 years when women of color were, you know, hitting the panic button and saying, guys, like, this is really, really bad. But what, 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 what were we told? We were told it was freedom of speech. We cannot have a conversation about free speech without talking about power. And what social media has done with the growth that's happened over the past 10 years is it has recalibrated who has the power. This, wasn't there a, isn't there a famous saying that um, everything is about sex except sex, which is about power? And I think that of social media, like everything is about social media except social media, which is about power. You know, everyone talks about how social media has polarized the discourse, but actually social media itself is not about the polarization of the discourse. Social media is about power and who has the power. And the power right now is still with those people that have the platforms. They've still got their columns. They've still got their publishing contracts. They've still got their wealth and their, and their, and their privileges. They just don't like being told that their reception is not as strong as it was 10, 15 years ago. You say something in the book that I think is so necessary to all of us uh, to hold on to. You ask, are you trying to make a point or are you trying to get somewhere? Could you explain what the difference is and how do we ensure that we are getting somewhere, not just making a point? Yes, thank you for bringing that up, actually. That, um, that thought has really kept me sound and touch wood <laughs> that that continues um, during the kind of storms of the past decade or so um, in the public space. I feel like... If you want, if you are in a discussion with someone, if you're having an argument with someone, or if you're writing something, um, or if you are in uh, a kind of general discourse with family or friends or partners, there's two ways of approaching uh, your argument. One is that you want to get somewhere, you and the people that you're talking to. You want to get to some sort of resolution or you want to be a step or two ahead from where you started whether it means that you understand the other person a bit more that other person understands you a bit more but you still disagree that's still getting somewhere making a point is just winning right making a point is just landing a blow on someone and so much of our discourse around how we talk these days is about winning I don't know if you've noticed, but even like the the jargon of it, like we talk about owning people, you know, oh, that person was owned online, you know, or that person was clapped back to, or that person was destroyed, or that person was annihilated. You know, that's what making a point is. It's kind of make a point to your own gallery, to people who agree with you, to completely um, uh, destroy someone else in argument and so that you and the people who agree with you get a rush and feel like they've scored a point. Um, that is great for you, but where does it get us in general, right? What is your purpose? In the world, what is your purpose? Is your purpose to kind of make a tribal point that makes you and your tribe feel good and sort of reinforces your own values to each other? 
Or is your point to try and understand the world? Because we don't all understand the world perfectly. We're not all reliable witnesses in our experiences and, and, and our politics. Do you want to understand the world? And do you want to bring other people along with you? And it's really hard. For me personally, it's really hard to kind of toe that line because I'm talking about things that I think there should be no debate about right? There is no debate about racism. There is no debate about sexism. There is no debate about uh, violence, hate speech, abuse of minorities. But at the same time, you have to be able to present your arguments in such a way so that you're not just two parties standing in a boxing ring on either end, just waiting to have a go at each other all the time. And it seems increasingly that's all that we're allowed to do now. All we're allowed to do is debate. All we're allowed to do is have these like punch and Judy ding-dongs all the time about climate change, about race, about gender. And it's not a game, you know, this is people's lives and it's people's, it is, it's people's futures and it's the future of the next generation. And we are not handling it responsibly by reducing everything to the spectacle of debate. And so as we all struggle in how to navigate these kind of, you know, really um, uh, hyper discursive moments where we're always having a fight about something is to just stop and ask yourself. I always stop and ask myself, especially if I'm getting really emotional about something. I think, okay, are you trying to make a point? It's actually quite easy to make a point because, you know, the justice is on your side. Are you trying to make a point? Are you trying to get somewhere? And that's usually helped me, helped me navigate, um, the terrain. Nazreen, I've learned so much from We Need New Stories and even more from you coming on the show today. I'm sure our listeners have too. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. We Need New Stories is out in paperback on the 20th of August. Thank you very much for listening to The Hilo. You can speak to us by emailing thehiloshow at gmail.com. You can tweet us at The Hilo Show. You can buy our merch at thehiloshop.com. 100% of proceeds go to charity, 50% to Freedom Charity, 50% to Black Minds Matter. We will not be talking to you next week, pals. We will be talking to you at the beginning of September after we have our summer break. We hope wherever you are that you get to have moments of relaxation even if it's just in the park with a tinny we'll speak to you in september bye 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 yeah, yeah, yeah.